from my experience, I have found that our heavenly parents know how important this part of our marriage and our basically and our own sexuality. I mean, we are inherently sexual beings, and that has to come from within us first. And so we are created in their image. They are also sexual beings, and they know how important this is. Since doing this work, I have felt Heavenly Mother's presence so much. I, I have felt her more than I have ever felt her in my entire life. I know how important this work is to her specifically and, to, and for her daughters. This is a big piece that many of her daughters are missing. And we were created in her image and her likeness. And when we deny this part of ourselves, we deny part of her. We, de we deny part of our divinity. And so they are very willing to help in this area. I, I have so many clients who are like, I felt guided to find you, Amanda, because the work that I'm doing is the work that my heavenly parents want me to do. So they will absolutely answer your prayers and help you with this part of your life because they know how important it is. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall and excited to be able to share this conversation with you. It is not often that we get to talk about yeah, the S word, you know, the sex here in The Cultural Hall. And I love it when there are people that are trained, that don't call it the S word, and that are comfortable talking about all matters of intimacy and sexuality. And so I look forward to uh, not only uh, you listening to this episode, but also any feedback that you have, contact at theculturalhall.com. You can always reach out to me there. A great way to be able to uh, give us any sort of input that we can use to make these episodes better. You can also become a Patreon saint, and I encourage you to do that. It's patreon.com forward slash the culture hall. Let's get into it. It's time for another episode of the cultural hall, and I just want to let everyone know that we are, in fact, going to have adult conversation. So if you have little ears in the car, uh, we aren't going to talk about anything in, you know, like a like a perverse or gross way, certainly. But if you have little ears in the car or uh, around as you're listening to this on your smart, smart speaker and you think, you know, maybe I'm not ready to have that conversation yet, we're going to invite you to press pause on this and come back to it. Uh, other than that, allow me to introduce you to our guest this morning, uh, Amanda Louder, who is a life coach and a sex therapist and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for being here, Amanda. Thank you so much. But I do have one correction. I am not a therapist. I'm oh, just a coach. Oh, a sex coach. Okay, so let's start there then. Uh, therapy okay. is, is a degree of many years, and a sex coach is just like, yeah, have better sex. <laughs> so I do have a certification. I mean, Coaching is not a regulated industry, so really anyone can call themselves a coach. I do have certification in certain methods of coaching, and I'm actually working on a second certification specifically in sex, love, and relationship coaching. So I have, I'm more than just a person just calling herself a coach for no good reason. Okay, good. <laughs> so there are certifications there. One of the things about the coaching industry, and we recently, uh, 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 in the last few episodes, we had Jody Moore, who is a life coach, and I give her a hard time as well, where I say, I'm a coach because I say I am, and because of the coaching yeah. industry, you essentially can say you are a coach, but but you've Absolutely. got the pieces of paper that back it up. 
Absolutely. Jody and I both went to the same school for our coaching certification. So uh, when we talk about being a sex coach, there are lots of jokes that come to mind, but I wonder, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, all right, good for you. Good for you guys. It's much more yeah. than that. What what drives someone to want to be a sex coach? And then especially in, in, a, in a culture where we say things like the S word or, you know, my parents yeah. uh, are they're they're having shower time or you know what I'm saying we use these sort of veiled references to what yeah. what many contend God created to be very enjoyable for good reason well for me it was be based on my own journey through this um, I was a person who grew up in a home where we didn't talk about sex we we didn't have any really many of those conversations at all. And so I went into my first marriage very young and with very little knowledge beyond just basic intercourse. And I hated sex mm. for very a, a long, long time. I would basically just do it whenever he wanted to get him off my back. I mean, I would put it off as long as I possibly could and say, okay, fine, doing this to get you off my back. And then it would be a while um, before we did it again. And sex was not pleasurable. It was not fun. It was something that I did strictly for him, for his quote unquote needs. And, you know, as our marriage went on, it got really bad. And I decided, well, maybe if the sex got better, then our marriage would get better. And so I decided that I needed to really work on myself and figure out my sexuality, um, get rid of the shame that I felt around it which was really, really hard. But I finally learned about my own body, um, learned how to actually have pleasure from sex, learned that it could really be for just as much for me as it was for him. Now, the sex got better, but our marriage was still terrible. <laughs> so we ended up getting divorced. And when I got remarried, um, my, my second husband and I, have, we have created a beautiful sexual relationship. Now, fast forward, I became a life coach, and I originally was coaching women who were struggling in their marriage and contemplating divorce. I was getting a ton of phone calls, emails, texts, asking for divorce advice. And I thought about going back to school to become a therapist, but I really didn't want to deal with all of the mental illness. Um, that's just not what my focus was on. I just wanted to help people have a better marriage. And so coaching seemed like the perfect fit for me. And so I started doing that and I noticed that there were so many women who were struggling with sex and that was why they were struggling in their marriage. And because I had done that work on myself and I had been continuously studying to improve myself and my sexual relationship with my spouse and my own sexuality, I had a lot of knowledge in this area. And I went on a girl's trip with a bunch of other coaches and we rented a house and of course sex came up in our conversations. And by the end of the weekend, they said, Amanda, you have to change your niche to sex because we have learned more about sex in a weekend with you <laughs> than we have in 15 to 20 years of marriage. Hmm. So that's kind of how it all came about. Something was really scary at first. I was really nervous to put myself out there being in this very conservative religion and um, being in a family where I grew up not talking about sex. I knew that my parents were probably going to have a huge problem with it. Mm -hmm. And um, but I prayed about it and I felt very, very strongly that this was my path and this is what I was made for. And that has been confirmed over and over and over 
as I've done this work, that I am doing the work that God wants me to do. And it's very, very important for his children. You talk about the shame and guilt, uh, which we as members of the church sort of shroud sex in, sexual things. We, we, yeah. we <laughs> boy, if there's another religion that does as well with the shame and guilt around sex, I, I mean, I don't want to point any fingers. I can think of maybe a singular religion, but like we've got it on lockdown. Like we know from beginning to end, from young person to older person to married to single to LGBTQ to not, you know, whatever the thing is, like there is a way that we can make you not only feel shameful about it, but also guilt ridden uh, about your feelings within it. You talk about a kind of Mm -hmm. a reprogramming for yourself. Walk through what what that sounded like, what that is uh, to give some some maybe insight or some hope for those that that find themselves in the same situation. Yeah, so I kind of had to figure out what I actually believed about sex. And, you know, that meant diving into what is the doctrine behind it? What, What really does God want for me? And is it really as bad as everybody makes it out to be? I mean, you know, the culturally... The world tells us, oh, sex is amazing. You should do it all the time. Don't worry about, you know, doing it within marriage. But then, like, we've got these two, like, I grew up hearing, you know, no, 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 it's bad. Don't do it. You're a chewed up piece of gum if you do. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, as soon as you get married, yep, it's okay. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful part of marriage. Like, that doesn't even make sense. How does that, how can I reconcile that? And what I really came to understand is it's not just no, 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 this sex is bad. Is Sex is a wonderful, beautiful thing when it's done within the bounds that the Lord has put forth, when we are using it in a way to create a beautiful marriage and relationship. And it's really an inherent part of my divine being. That is not bad, ever. Hmm. It's just we need to use it at an appropriate time. And within marriage, that is the appropriate time. So when it's done within that context, like, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not bad outside of it. It's just not the right time. And so when I started to understand those kinds of things, and that, you know, when when we talk about pleasure and joy, like, you know, men are that they are, they might have joy. God wants us to have joy. We are supposed to have pleasure in, in this life. There are so many things that are good. It's not supposed to be bad all the time. So we have to have both the pleasure and the pain, right? That's the whole reason why Eve partook of the fruit is because we need to have that dichotomy. We need to have both experience, both in this life. So there's a kind of a, a theme that goes through where that guilt comes in, like, okay, you know, sex is okay because I'm married, but I shouldn't have too much fun or too much pleasure. It's like this whole thing, like, yes, you should. That's what this life is all about. And so when I could start to see the way, the things that I had been taught and they actually didn't make sense, then it started to all unravel. You talk about as part of your journey, like uh, like getting to know yourself, right? Getting yeah. to know, Getting to know what, um, not only feels good, but you know what we, the things that you may be in fact interested in sexually or pleasurably or sensually or whatever the thing is. And I think that everyone instantly in their mind goes, "She's talking about masturbation, and we can't do that. Why would she even recommend that we can do that?" Or it becomes this: uh, Is she talking about what I think she's talking about? <laughs> 
because I don't want to talk right? about it right now. So so yeah. that certainly comes to play uh, within it. Um, recently, I heard you interviewed, and, and I know that you mentioned um, within what I was listening to that, you know, men, let's face it, there are two types of men in the world, men who have at one time masturbated and then those who lie about ever doing that. Those are the two <laughs> right? types of men in the world. And women yep. typically don't. I I don't know what statistics are, but I would I would imagine that it is far less that women have experienced that. But then yeah. here we pair them up at 19, 20, 21. Let's even go out and take it as far as 30 and say, hey, be pure, be chaste. Congratulations. You got a free pass to each other. I hope I hope the pieces fit together. Good luck. Right. Right. And I am I am not pro masturbation. OK, let me just say that out there. But I do think there is, um, it is important for people to understand how their body works. So, you know, whether that is, you know, right before marriage, you know, taking some time to explore yourself, that doesn't mean you have to come all the way to orgasm. But like understanding like, oh, if I, if I touch here or I have my partner, my spouse touch here, that feels good. Okay, let's work on that. And, you know, some, pe- some people want to do it together once they're married. That's totally fine. But all of the guidance that we have been given around masturbation, um, well, it's changed over the years. But it's in the for strength of youth, which is recommendations, not doctrine, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's because it does change. And we know that doctrine doesn't actually change. But that is given to youth, and that is not given to married couples. It's not even given to adults adult singles. So we have to kind of look at the context. And we also have to look at like, what is this producing for me? What are the results? By your fruits, you shall know them. Like if it is going to produce good results in my marriage for myself, is that what I want? And can I pray about it? Can I ask God, you know, is this right for me rather than just saying bad, 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 bad? There is another side of it, though, where uh, masturbation or self-pleasure can be problematic, especially in a marital relationship. Maybe worth mentioning a little bit about that right here. Well, it could be if you're hiding it. Hmm. But I have found that for most couples where masturbation is just, you know, a part of their marriage, like you're free to do it. whenever you want, or I want to be told, or it's a great way to help balance different drives. Like if you have a man who's wanting it twice a day and a woman who wants it once a month, that's a big discrepancy that we have to overcome. And so looking at how we can, you know, reasonably manage. Now, I think part of the problem is is that it often gets paired with pornography. Mm -hmm. And let me just say, I am not okay with that. But I think there's a difference between you know, we can, we can uncouple those and masturbation on its own. We have never, ever been told we can't do that within marriage. There are a myriad of uh, problems, uh, discussion points that people have as far as pornography. I don't know that I want to go deeply into them, but what, what do you think is the largest problem when an individual or even couples uh, involve pornography as part of their relationship? Um, I just think it sets you up for um, unrealistic expectations. Hmm. Um, I, I'm definitely not pro pornography either. I hope I make that clear, but, um, I don't think it needs to be as terrible as people make it out to be Hmm. just because, um, it's most of the time it's a coping mechanism and 
you know, it's how we don't, we don't like the way we're feeling and we know that makes us feel good. So we do that. And we all have coping mechanisms. Every single one of us, you know, you know, I talk to women and they're like, well, you know, I do scroll through social media when I'm not feeling very good or I drink a Diet Coke or I go shopping or I watch a lot of Netflix. And, you know, we all have coping mechanisms. So if you can look at it more like that and then learn different ways to cope that are better for you and better for your marriage. But I just don't think when we start telling people like pornography destroys marriages, it absolutely can but it doesn't have to. Would you have the belief that pornography is going to destroy your marriage? Pornography is going to destroy your marriage. Hmm. You know, I appreciate uh, uh, kind of having that conversation around it. One of the things that has been poignant to me, and I can't remember where I picked this up, but but someone talked about how uh, the vind- individuals whom you see within pornography are actors and actresses, and mm-hmm. and and keeping that in mind, where if you ever have the expectation that, you know, you're going to be the lover that causes someone to scream, you know, at the top of their lungs or anything like that. That person is acting. That is not genuinely how they feel, most likely. I guess we don't really know. But they are acting out what they feel like they need to do in order to excite you, the viewer. It's not real life. Yeah. Yeah. It is is acting. It is pretend. It is fantasy. I mean— Really, pornography is the acting out of someone's fantasy. It's not real. Uh, Let's take a break real quick. When we come back in the second block, I want to talk about garments and sex. And I'm not going to get weird about it. Hang on. We'll come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. I want to take a brief moment and tell you about Best DJ in Utah. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Who is that me? It's also three other guys that I have hired to work for me. Why? Because business has been so great. Uh, We've been able to help a lot of couples as they've been celebrating their weddings, been able to do a lot of uh, holiday parties, uh, birthday parties, being able to just to do community events as well. We do travel, so I know you're thinking, well, listen, I live in Nevada. I live in Idaho. I've even gone so far as Louisiana. I've been down to Texas. I've been up to Washington Uh, All of the places certainly is possible to be able to play music in. Obviously, you just need to get there. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Let's start the conversation about it. You're getting married. You're thinking about getting married. You'd like to get married. Whatever the thing may be, bestdjinutah.com. Windows 11 computers are here from $29 a month. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Culture Hall, if you want to become a Patreon saint of the Culture Hall, please do. I've asked you before. I don't know what's making you, uh, you know, wait on this. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall, where for five, ten, or even twenty-five dollars a month, you can become a Patreon saint. You get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where all the other Patreon saints are hanging out, and you also get to see videos when we have videos, and you get access to our back catalog. That's right, we're in the five hundred and something episodes. You want to get easy access to those first three hundred? You got to become a Patreon saint. To to do it. Amanda, there is a there is a certain contingent of people that feel like um, that garments aren't sexy, that um, they are an oppression, certainly of just sexuality in general, but specifically of the female body and anything that would be sexual about the female body. What say you? I say they have good reasons. <laughs> but it's all, I mean, it all depends on how you think about it. 
Okay, really. tell I me. Mean, if, if, you, if you are thinking those things, then that's what they're going to become. But they don't have to be. And it really, you know, it's a, garments are a symbol, and we can choose to wear them when it works for us. And that is strictly between us and God. So I think, you know, I'm a big advocate for doing um, whatever is in alignment with your integrity and uh, whatever is in alignment with God for you. And that's going to look different for every person. And it's not my job to judge. Do you, do you think that it's literally, and I just want to walk this out because I think this is where people don't take the onus on themselves. Like it's like, hey, God, I'm thinking about just wearing a bra today. Like, is that the conversation or are they, how, how do you find that people are, are coming to their own individual decisions a, about garments versus regular underwear or sleeping naked or any of these things that would be maybe counter to how we feel like uh, we're, we're being judged about wearing our garments? Yeah, I mean, I think, so one of the things that I talk to a lot of my clients about is, you know, what is going to help you have a better relationship with yourself and your body, and what is going to help you have a better sexual relationship with your eternal companion? And if garments are getting in the way of that, I think that's a really good reason to take it to Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and say, you know, I want a good marriage. I want a good sexual relationship with my eternal companion. And I'm feeling really, I'm really struggling with this. You know, I'm thinking about maybe not wearing them at night or maybe not wearing them out on a date. And I, that's the decision I'm making. Tell me how you feel about it and listen. And most people, from what my experience, are getting the answer like, you need to do what's right for you. And you need to do what's right for your marriage. If taking off your garments before you go on a date with your spouse or, you know, wearing just a bra and panties during the day to help you get in the mood to have a good sexual relationship with your husband at night, do it. Our, our relationship with our eternal companion is the most important relationship we have. And if, you know, sex, if you are struggling with sex, why not do everything that you can to make that better? Because that is the most important relationship. And I think our heavenly parents are very supportive of that. It's interesting. It immediately pops into my mind that I think that, you know, those that would speak counter to what you're saying is, well, you know, Amanda, you're just looking for an excuse not to wear them. You're just yeah. trying to, I used oh, to be that person. Yeah. So, so if you <laughs> used, used to, to be, be that, that person, person, now you're not. Talk to me a little bit more, because I think, I think this is more than not. I think that people have, you know, the, the questions for the, the temple recommend and, and for, I guess, like what full fellowship in the church used to be, do you wear your garments day and night? And that language has changed. So how, mm-hmm. how did you go from, I need to wear them every single waking second to, you know, maybe there's a, a bigger point to this right now. Walk us through yeah. how you did that. Yeah, so I love my garments, and I actually have a really strong testimony of them. Um, they're, they're part of, it sounds really strange, but they're part of my father's conversion story, and so I, I really have strong ties to them. I love my garments, so I want to just preface that. I, I'm not one of those that hates wearing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I noticed that they would often keep me, I mean, they're, 
you know, the shield and the protection. And am I using that shield to shield myself against my husband hmm. and his advances versus using it to actually shield what needs to be shielded from? And so when I started to notice that in myself, that's when I started, you know, have thinking differently about it and really taking the, I mean, on my knees going, Heavenly Father, this is how I'm feeling. And I love my garments and I, I'm not sure why and help me understand. And, you know, I got answers like, it's okay. It's okay. If that if taking them off is what's going to help you feel closer to your husband, then do that because that is important. If that's what's going to work for you, I love you. I'm in full support of that. Hmm. And it really took it to make on my knees. And really, it was my my husband that suggested, so we don't wear ours at night. And because we like more skin-to-skin time. Mm -hmm. And that helps us have a more intimate relationship. And I don't just mean sex. Like, it definitely produces more sex. But it helps us have a more intimate relationship having that skin-to-skin time. I think that's a por- an important thing because so much of when we think intimacy, we think, oh, it's a code word for intercourse. That's yeah. that's not it. Other types of intimacy no. are things like you mentioned, just skin to skin or, or holding hands. How valuable – let's subtract intercourse from a relationship. How valuable are those other parts of intimacy within uh, our marital relationships? So valuable. I mean – I think intercourse should be a very small part of our sexual and intimate relationships. There's so much more involved. And, you know, for a lot of couples, they think that intercourse is the pinnacle and that's what needs to happen at every single sexual encounter, which is for women sometimes really hard. They're just not ready to have that, you know, all the time, but they are willing to do other things. And so if we can sometimes, curve intercourse like it doesn't have to be part of every single sexual encounter you're actually going to open up the doors to more sex i i also have want to uh talk about because i feel like this occurs in a lot of um relationships and you sort of cued this up at the very beginning the obligatory sex or i think uh, duty sex is maybe another way that it, it's been phrased. First of all, yeah. define that. And then second of all, let's talk about how we can maybe walk our way out of that, no matter which partner we are, from from having that very obligatory sex. Yeah. So culture, um, it, whether it's, you know, society at large or within the church, within families, we kind of are given – the narrative that men are the sexual ones and men are these insatiable beasts that need to be satisfied. And it is a wife's responsibility to manage his sexuality within the marriage so that he doesn't go outside of the marriage, that sex is a need and it's her job to take care of that need. And, you know, men phrase it this way and just society in general, so women get this idea that, you know, their needs aren't as important and his needs in this realm are the most important. And it's her job, it's her duty as a good wife to help manage his sexuality and give him sex whenever he needs it so that he can stay within the bounds of, you know, our system and like not have an affair or not watch pornography, not go outside. I mean, there's a whole book uh, written about, you know, 
I'm sure there's lots of books, mm-hmm. that it is a woman's job to feed him food and sex, and that is what is going to keep your husband in line. Eesh. And I think that is terrible advice because, for one, you know, sex is for both men and women. It is something that, you know, is not just for men. Women have just as much a need for that emotional and physical connection as men do. But when you sit and frame it as it's just something for a man, we completely lose that part. Hmm. Um, Another thing is, yes, sex is, you know, often a need in such a way that, like, it's not the same as, like, food, air, and water. You don't need sex for survival. Right. But for many people we do need sex in order to have an elevated existence in this life. Hmm. Not everybody, hmm. but a, a lot of people. It kind of, if you're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sex is at the bottom with the food and water because it is really hard to move up that hierarchy without it. So, you know, we have to kind of remember that. Um, we also have to remember that we both have agency <laughs> that can use, be used at any time to be sexual or not. Um, sex is not dangerous. Sex is not good or bad. It just is. And it's how we use it that becomes good or bad. So outside of the bounds, you know, of marriage, sex can be bad, Mm -hmm. but within the marriage, it's good. And so it's not a woman's job to manage her husband's sexuality. So the way to get out of this is for women to do their own work and discover themselves and their embrace their own sexuality and understand that sex is just as much for them as it is for the man. And then the other part of this is men stopping, stop accepting duty sex because bad sex, like, you know that your wife's not into it Mm -hmm. and you're basically just using her for your own sexual satisfaction, which I don't think any man really wants to do you know, come down to it. Like they want to have that intimate connection, be able to express their love to their wife in this way. And if she's really not having it, like, do you really want it? But yet so many men are accepting the bad sex just because they think it's the only sex they can get. And so it seems really hard, like, nope, I'm not going to accept duty sex anymore. And that might mean I go without sex for a little while while my wife is working on developing herself and only accept sex that she truly, really wants to give out of her own free will, not because it's her job. The danger in that, though, is if the partner isn't doing the work, obviously, right? Because if you refuse to accept uh, duty or obligatory sex because you're just like, not into it, you know, I'll go ahead and wait. Like, that can be the first step towards a sexless marriage if the other person isn't doing the work to try and create that sexual relationship. I, I agree with that, and that is a very scary prospect but I also think that in that process, you have, as a man, you have to be working on yourself and becoming the person that is like irresistible to your wife. I mean, she fell in love with you for a reason. So, and it wasn't just sex. So, you know, really working on yourself and, and putting appropriate pressure on the marriage, not on her, but on the marriage to mature and elevate in a way that is better for both parties, not just as a way to get more sex. 
This is less sexually related, but I it seems to fit at this point in this at this point in this conversation is, you know, we we are sort of taught culturally that it's like make sure the man's needs are met, right? That's the the woman's charge. Yeah. And then for men, it's remember happy wife, happy life, and with yeah. it. So again, not sexually related, but how wrong is that advice? I I hear that having the opportunity to go to lots of weddings, which isn't to say, you know, make sure you make your wife unhappy or don't help her. But like that is such a thing where if you really buy into the whole of happy wife, forget your own happiness, gentlemen, and make sure your wife is happy. That's just as destructive as as a marriage filled of obligatory sex. 100%. 100%. And the truth of it is, is no matter what you do, you can't make her happy. Yeah. She's yeah. going to she's gonna be, her happiness comes from within her. So can we stop some of these things for crying out loud? For, so let me ask yeah. you this. Uh, okay. I, uh, I'm going to I'm going to walk this out situationally, not my situation, but I'm in a relationship. I'm married. You know, I'm, I'm listening to this and I go, oh, man. Boy, this this dysfunctional sexual relationship that uh, Amanda's been talking about. This is us. Yeah. I've may, maybe even had some sort of spiritual waking to it as well, right? Like a compulsion mm-hmm. to go, oh, oh, this is you know, this is true. This needs to be worked on. This is where we're at. What won't go well is if that individual goes, you know, our sexual life, you know, our relationships all messed up. I heard it on a podcast today. We better work on it. That's not the way to do this. What What is a good no. way to have this type of conversation uh, with your partner? Well, I would say maybe sit down and re-listen to this with your partner and then just have a talk about it. Like, how do you feel about our relationship in regards to what's been talked about? Um, this is kind of how I'm feeling, but I also want to take into account the way that you feel and what you're, you're thinking. And really that communication aspect is really, really important. And I also think, you know, not focusing on what your spouse isn't doing Mm -hmm. or is doing, but focusing on yourself and working to improve yourself independently. And that will, I mean, it, it tends to pressure the relationship and pressure your spouse to mature as well, that you're not saying, Hey, you need to do this or we need to fix this, it's um, what can I do to work on myself in this situation? Let's talk a little more about that, because I'm sure what people are thinking is if you want to have a conversation with your spouse, it's because you're like, yeah, idiot, if you would act differently, we wouldn't have this problem. Rarely are we like, I'm the idiot. Boy, I sure need to do this work and then well, bring I the solutions to the person. It. Yeah. No, and, and that's probably I'm like I'm seeing myself in this situation. Mm-hmm. You see me mm. rather than like I'm seeing you. It's, I'm seeing myself. Do you see that? Okay, I'm going to start working on me in this. But but you know that's not our natural inclination. Well, of course it's not, but that's what <laughs> mature people do. <laughs> so that's why I'm having such a disconnect from something like that, because I'm not a mature person. But but it really is that hard look at self. How how can yeah. ha, any any sort of advice that you can throw out? I know this is... This is sort of short nugget form type type uh, questions, but like things that we can do to really take a look at ourselves. Because I think take when you say take a look at yourself and see what you're doing. I mean, uh, I don't see that it's me. I see it's my partner. That's sort of my initial reaction to to some of those things. Any ways that we can look yeah. a little deeper? Well, one of my favorite questions to ask myself, and I have my clients ask, is where do my resentments lie? 
where am I resentful? Because where I'm resentful, we tend to want to blame the other person, but it's actually where we are not showing up in the way that we should hmm. in the relationship. We're not taking care of ourselves in that way. That's why we tend to like over-function or under-function, and so we're not doing what we need to do. So if we can look at where our resentments lie, then we can have a clearer picture of where we need to improve. And I'm also a big fan of just praying about it and going, Heavenly Father, where do I need to work? And I guarantee he will let you know. <laughs> I love, I mean, within our, within our, certainly our faith, but also within the culture of it, it's like we, we know that if we ask God, we can receive answers. And I, and yes. I feel like we reserve that for like certain things, right? Like, should I marry this person? Help me find yeah. my keys, you know, like, <laughs> yes. like those certain things. But I, I, I would venture to guess that most people haven't prayed about their sexual relationship and it's not that yeah. you know it's not that in alma we're not taught that we can pray literally over everything because we are taught yep. that it's that we go yeah so prayer is not for that though that seems weird talking to god about sex i, I don't know i'll figure that one on my own where where did i leave those car keys where is that where can i find this <laughs> right but from my experience i have found that our heavenly parents know how important this part of our marriage and our basically and our own sexuality i mean we are inherently sexual beings and that has to come from within us first and so we are created in their image they are also sexual beings and they know how important this is um you know i've talked about this a little bit in other places but since doing this work i have felt Heavenly Mother's presence so much. I, I have felt her more than I have ever felt her in my entire life. I know how important this work is to her specifically and, to, and for her daughters. This is a big piece that many of her daughters are missing. And we were created in her image, in her likeness. And when we deny this part of ourselves, we deny part of her. We, de we deny part of our divinity. And so they are very willing to help in this area. I, I have so many clients who are like, I felt guided to find you, Amanda, because, and because the work that I'm doing is the work that my heavenly parents want me to do. So they will absolutely answer your prayers and help you with this part of your life because they know how important it is. I know uh, the the idea of Heavenly Mother, the uh, doctrine of Heavenly Mother, is, is something particularly not not uh, not only to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, but I mean we are one of few that really believe in that uh, female deity and 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 call her as such uh, Heavenly Mother. The idea of being able to talk to parents rather than just a father figure about. Um, sex or, or really anything, what, what changes that for you than just if it were a, a male deity? Yeah, um, because, because she is my mother, and being able to talk to my mother about womanly things, female things, things that she understands better than anyone else, it's a, it's a different thing. And a lot of, a lot of women, um, I mean, we love Heavenly Father, but you know, oftentimes our relationship with Heavenly Father 
is reflected in our relationship with our earthly father. Mm-hmm. We kind of, you know, think of our heavenly father the same as we think of our earthly father. And if that relationship is strained at all, then the relationship with, you know, heavenly father is strained. Hmm. And a lot of times um, we tend to have complicated, <laughs> but better relationships with our mother, or at least it's the mother that we've always wanted. And so I think that's a lot of times the way that I approach it is, you know, our heavenly parents are the parents that we always wanted. They're the parents that know exactly what to say and, and how to say it and to make you help you feel the way that you want to feel. And so, you know, when you don't have that kind of relationship with your earthly parents, you can have that kind of relationship with your heavenly parents. We've got one more block of the cultural hall, and, you know, just through these first two blocks, I have to tell you, uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and we've gone places that I didn't think at the onset of this conversation uh, that we were going to go, which makes me excited uh, for, as we come back to the third block, I want to talk about talking with our kids about sex, especially within our culture. We'll do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Oh, hey, is this seat taken? My name is Kurt Frankham from the Leading Saints podcast, and it's about time I make it to the back row of the Cultural Hall and tell you what's happening. Your friends over at Leading Saints are organizing another virtual conference, and this time we're talking about how do we lead the rising generation. We're calling it the Young Saints Virtual Conference. That's right. How do we lead 12-year-olds and beyond in the church and even the young adults? They live in a different world than many of us when we were young, and they face unique challenges. So we've gathered 20-plus presenters who have a unique experience working with youth and finding success. To get all the details and to see who is speaking and what topics will be covered, visit LeadingSaints.org youth. You can find the link in the show notes or simply visit LeadingSaints.org youth. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Culture Hall, remember you can now leave us a review over on Spotify. You've been able to do it on Apple for a long time, and if you haven't, what's your deal? Can I just ask you that? If you've been holding on to a negative review, just keep that to yourself. But if you have something positive to say, and I don't know how you couldn't, uh, share it. Apple, Spotify uh, are a couple great places where you can be able to do that. If you listen on a platform where you're not able to leave reviews and you're thinking, man, I should tell someone about this, when you next worship with other people, other congregants, you can say, hey, have you heard about this cultural hall thing? And they'll say, yeah, dummy, it's been around for 11 plus years. Of course I have. Find that person that won't call you a dummy and introduce them to the cultural hall. Amanda, so many times within uh, our culture, we think that, man, if we say sex to our kids, they are going to turn right out of that conversation and go out and try whatever it is that you talk to them about. 
even if it's just high level, they get curious about it. When they're curious about it, they think about it. When they think about it, as we all know, thoughts lead to actions. And so rather than having healthy uh, conversations with our children, we just button up, makes us feel awkward. We don't know what to say. And then we have generation upon generation upon generation who's never really understood uh, uh, what healthy sexuality is. Correct. So how do we break it? So how do we break it? Yeah, I mean, first it starts with you as the parent in getting really comfortable with your own sexuality first. We're going to be a whole lot more comfortable talking to our kids when we're comfortable with ourselves first. So that's my first advice. I know, like, when my older kids were younger, I did not handle things well. But yet my younger kids, you know, now we're having very open conversations about sex. And I have those with my older kids now because I had to go back and say, hey, I did not handle that well. I am so sorry. I am working on, you know, trying to talk to you more, but I want you to know that I'm really sorry for the way that I handled things in the past. And so now I can have those conversations with my older kids as well because I've gone in to try and repair that relationship. We, you know, my 22 year old son, he'll call me up and like, okay, I have questions and we'll sit and talk on the phone for two and a half hours about sex. Hmm. So it is possible. um, But you have to do your own work first. But I think it's really a matter of talking to your kids about, I mean, we have to talk to them about it and not just give them the basics, but really help them understand what healthy sexuality looks like. And, um, when we when we leave it up to the internet or the world, like they're going to, they're much more likely to put themselves in situations that aren't good. Studies show that the more knowledge that they have, the less likely they are to engage in risky behaviors. Hmm. Um, their their um, sexual debut, losing their virginity, if you want to call it, is put off longer. Um, They're less likely to end up pregnant or with STIs. So the more knowledge that we can give them, it's not going to propel them towards sex. It's actually going to give them more knowledge to make better choices that are in alignment with their integrity. Which is worth noting, that is counter to what we feel like would be the truth. It's literally the opposite. Yes. So so let's walk this out for the uh, the person that like struggles to say the word like penis, right? So uh, I, yeah, I, I, there there is um, a large, I think, contingent of people who even just like using the terms or having a conversation around it at all, let alone their mm-hmm. own offspring. Like they're like you know, and they're you know. And, and, and just can't have it if it's as simple as even just being able to use the words and, and, and not just die of shame as you say the word. Like how, how can you even think to have a conversation? Right. That's often the very first step that I, um, when we're really, when I'm struggling, when I'm working with a client, they're really struggling to, Um, have these kinds of conversations with themselves, their spouse, their kids. I'm like, let's make a list of all the words. And then I want you to just sit in front of the mirror and practice saying those words. Practice them so that they just roll off like your grocery list. (laughs) Like You can say them, you can say penis, vagina, vulva, you know, testicles, anus, whatever, just as easily as you can say apples, bananas, cheese, milk. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And when you can get to that point, it's going to be a lot easier. But it takes practice. And, you know, if you are not at that point where you can, you feel like you could have these conversations with your kids, um, but you know you need to, I would sit down and frame it that way. Say, you know, I'm really struggling having these conversations because of how I was raised and I want to do differently with you, but it's still really hard for me. And it's not because I believe it's shameful, but because that's how I was raised and I'm working towards making it better. So we're going to have a conversation. It's going to be awkward for you. It's going to be awkward for me. And we're just going to push through that awkward and have it anyway. Do you have advice as far as like duration of what conversations like that would be? Because I know when we talk uh, culturally about like we have the talk, right? And if you were to talk about everything that someone needed to know about sex and have it be a part of one conversation, first of all, that's a long conversation. And second of all, like there's no room for questions or development for that person. So if you only have that talk one time, there's a lot of missing pieces for that. Are they short sort of like like 10 minute conversations, check-ins, maybe, you know. Yes. Lots and lots and lots of conversations. And they're constant, like you being tuned into what's going on for your kids at different stages, be able to have those conversations as they mature. And you're not going to have the same conversation with a six-year-old as you are a 16-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's some really great guidelines that I love for having these conversations um, it's the Six Principles of Sexual Health by Doug Braun Harvey. And you can look up the Harvey Institute and look, just look up like Six Principles of Sexual Health. And um, it go, kind of goes through a framework of how you can have these conversations starting very, very, very small with your children if you have young children. And then you, you know, add in more age appropriate things within these six principles as they age. So that by the time they're, you know, in high school and getting into dating and stuff, they've had all of these conversations that need to be had. But you're still opening for more and more as they continue to mature. Are there mistakes to be made if you overshare? Meaning like, um, you know, maybe you you start to talk to your kid, your teenage kid, and and you think maybe uh, like uh, oral sex might be something that they're participating in. And so you you sort of have a very frank conversation about something like that. Is is there damage to be done or or missteps that are irreparable if we if we maybe are too frank too early? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know statistics on that, Mm -hmm. but. I think, you know, our kids are going to figure things out one way or the other. And I think the more information, the better coming from a reputable source. Hmm. I, I I want to tell you a story. So I had uh, okay. I have a, a kid who's now in his 20s. But when he was a teenager, um, w- I think that uh, my ex-wife and I, we, we thought that he was sexually active on some level, but we didn't really know. And we wanted to make sure that if that was the choice that he was making, that he was being careful, right? That he was yeah. being, mm-hmm. you know, protective and 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 watching right. all that. But I also wanted to make sure that he knew how I very frankly felt about like whether or not he should be doing that at all. And yeah. And, yeah. and 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 <laughs> so maybe that's part of where my frank question comes around because I can remember uh, the one time that I allowed them both to sit in the back seat. Normally I would make him sit up front with me if we were taking her with him somewhere because I hated feeling like a chauffeur. But the one time I was like, you guys can both sit back there. We're on the freeway, so they're locked in. 
I, they had no yeah. choice but to listen to me. And I turned down the radio and I said, you know, just briefly, I'd like to talk about the following places where I don't think his penis belongs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, so and, and I, I went ahead and I just listed things and he is crimson red, just sure. em, embarrassed. And that wasn't my intention. Right. It was just like and, and that and that really is how I, I framed the conversation. I said, you know, here, this, this, this and this. And then I also said, but I'm not naive enough to think that this conversation will really change your minds. I just yeah. really hope that if you guys are doing this or any variation of this or maybe something beyond this, I just really hope that you guys will be safe and, you know, be protected so that any decisions that you guys make now don't impact your life down the road. And I think it went from crimson red to just like, yeah, OK, cool. Thanks for yeah. letting me know yeah. where you stand. He felt yeah. like he could talk to me about anything beyond that. Um and, yep. you know, as it turns out, they were able to to be safe and all of those things. But 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 it was uh, uncomfortable. And the only way I could see myself to go through it was just to be like, I want him to not have any question in his mind how I might feel about this. Yep. And also letting him know that no matter what, I've got his back. Exactly. I think that's fantastic. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the six principles of sexual health is um, shared values and understanding what our values are around sex. And I think that's one of the hardest conversations that we have with our kids is, you know, these are my values. What mm -hmm. are your values hmm. around sex? Because their values might actually be different. And I'm not talking about like, I, I, the way that I talk to my kids about it, like, it's not just what feels good in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, how do you truly feel about this internally? What is in alignment with your integrity? And are you living within that? I mean, that's the question for all of us in so many aspects of our life. What is true to our integrity? And are we living within that? Or are we, are we contradicting ourselves and living outside of our integrity? And values are different than behaviors. So we have to look at those two things separately and what what behaviors fit into the value system. And so I think it's really important to have those talks about values with your kids, not just behaviors. Well said. You know, Amanda, we could continue to talk for hours. And I hope that, you know, if people have questions, they can always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. We get enough questions around the things that we talked about. Uh, I bet I could talk Amanda into coming back into the cultural hall and we could be able to, to visit about whatever those questions may be. Would you be open to something like that? Absolutely. There are, though, three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, so I will ask those of you at this time. The first question is, Is do you have a calling, and if so, what is it? I am the CTR6 teacher. Okay. Helping them choose the right at the age of six. How's that going? It's great. I love the kids. I've been with them for a couple years now, and they're just the best. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, I, my favorite calling to have is a Relief Society teacher. 
But if I had to make one up, I would probably be the ward efficiency expert. Okay, talk to me about that. Talk to me about that. I tend to get moved into callings. I haven't, I've only been in this ward for a little bit, but when I've been in other wards for longer, they quickly realize the skills that I have and tend to put me into callings to help um, that organization function better. And so they'll put me in, get me, get it functioning really well, and then move me somewhere else that needs me to help needs to help functioning. So I would be the ward efficiency expert, helping the organizations to operate more efficiently and effectively. Talk to me about an inefficiency that you uh, you have a hack to. Well, this is kind of outdated now, but this was one of my favorite ones. Um, so we all remember Friends of Scouting uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and how terrible that was for everyone to go and collect every year. And I, um, the way that I did it in one of my wars um, was so effective that we tripled our donations, and it was the least amount of work. Okay. So what? what they, now they, you have to tell did. me what you did, because I'm just curious. I know we don't, <laughs> this doesn't help, because we don't really do this anymore, but I'm fascinated. So what I did is, instead of, you know, like normally they have the men do it, mm-hmm. but they had me do it, right? Mm-hmm. So I went into Elder's Quorum. And I had a clipboard with every family's name on it. And I just said, I just want to pass around this clipboard and you just mark if you are willing to donate or not. We don't have to make a commitment, not a dollar amount, like nothing at this point. Just like, are you willing to donate or not? And so they went, the clipboard went around one week and they marked yes or no. Mm -hmm. All of the people that had marked yes, the next week, I had a form already filled out that I had um, printed off their name, their address, their phone number, whatever. Um, so they didn't have to fill out anything. It was already there on the form, and they just had to mark down how much money they were willing to donate. And then we marked off, on because there was a little box on the slip that said, bill me later. <laughs> and rather than trying to actually collect the money, and, you know, because everybody's like, well, I forgot my checkbook or right, whatever. Right. Like, who brings a checkbook these days to right, church, you right. know? So, like, nobody had the money right then. And no, you'd keep forgetting to bring it back week after week. And so I was like, we're just going to check this bill me later. So everybody was willing to say what they were going to donate. And then I turned it in to the BSA and they just sent them the bill. That's awesome. Efficiency. I love it. I love it. All yeah. right. All yeah. right. Well, then I hope that you get a, a, a an efficiency-type calling in this new ward that you're in. Something something <laughs> needs to be revised. Something needs to be made more efficient. The final question that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall, we ask you to interpret it however you will, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith is that I can have a personal relationship with my Heavenly Parents, understanding that my relationship with them is an actual relationship that goes two ways, that I can talk to them, I can hear them talking to me and receive revelation for myself, for my family, and for what I need to do for my clients. And I feel that every single day, and I'm so grateful for it. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.